Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. So this week, um, we're kind of in this, in this time period leading up to Passover where almost every week is a special Shabbat. And this week is Shabbat Para. And it's the Sabbath that follows Purim is always Shabbat Para. And it is the time when the children of Israel were reminded that before they were going to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover Seder, they needed to begin preparing themselves for being able to come into the temple. So they had to be cleansed of all defilement that comes from coming into contact with death. And the purification came through the sprinkling of the waters that had the ashes of the red heifer in it. The portion, the Torah portion for uh, the red cow is not until Numbers 19, but I do want to read from Numbers 19, 1 through 13. The scripture says, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So the people of Israel did. And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, We are unclean through the touching of a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, Wait that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall sit, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people, because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time, and that man shall bear his sin. And so these people had come in contact with a corpse. They therefore did not have enough time between their contamination and the Passover to do the purification because the purification with the ashes of the red heifer is a seven-day process. So, and that's part of the reason why there is a time when everyone is given notice. Remember, you must go through the purification. That way this doesn't sneak up on you and you miss, miss out on the Passover. But one thing I love from this story is that the people didn't say, oh, well, too bad. I guess I just don't get to participate in the Passover. They said, no, I want to come and have the Lord's Passover. I want to share in this communion and this celebration of what God's done. So Moses, what can we do? And Moses says, let me, let me ask the Lord. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you a second time when you can come and do this. Now, interestingly, they're coming and celebrating the second Passover is they don't keep a week of unleavened bread. 
The week of unleavened bread with Passover is only done in the month of Nisan. And so then if you missed that first opportunity, then if you came in the second month, then you would just keep the Passover meal on the, for, the evening of the 14th, going into the 15th. But God provided a way for the cleansing of defilement that comes from death so that people could come and celebrate with him in the life that he's given. All right. So this week's portion is Kitisa. And where we've been the past few weeks is getting God giving instruction to Moses on how to build the tabernacle, how the children of Israel would make a sanctuary for God's presence to dwell in their midst. He's giving instruction according to all the vessels that would be in the, ta- in the tabernacle and then also what would the priest be wearing and how would you inaugurate them. So he was giving Moses the instruction on how to create a space for God's presence to dwell and then how man could come into God's presence and have that fellowship with him. So let's read in Exodus 31 verses 12 through 18. So when our portion opens up, there are a few commands that God gives that are still concerning how the tabernacle will function and how the construction of it will go. And before he gives Moses the tablets, this is where we come in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the, that I the Lord sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And they lived happily ever after, and that concludes our portion. <laughs> well, okay, maybe that's not how it goes. But wouldn't you just like to end the portion right there? Because here, you know, this is this incredible thing that's happening, that's taking place. God had told Moses to come. Well, God came down on the mountain, spoke the Ten Commandments in the presence of all the people. There's fire on the mountain. There's God's glory. He calls, he brings the children of Israel into covenant with him and calls Moses up and says, come up here because I'm going to give you the rest of the instruction. I'm going to give you the tablets of the testimony. Moses comes up and he starts learning all about how God's presence is going to dwell with man. That's exciting now. And now he gets all this instruction and God says, now remember, before you go down, you're creating space for me. Right? You're creating a tabernacle for my presence to dwell among you. But also, don't forget, you need to keep my time too. I'm, the Sabbath will be kept from generation to, gener- to generation forever. So you're creating a space for me and time for me. You've got the instruction. And now here are your tablets. 
and go. But the next thing we come into is the sin of the golden calf. So we thought we were doing well. Everything's looking great. And whenever we come to Kitisa, I'm always like, oh, no. The sin of the golden calf. You know, it's kind of like the, I have this feeling that's similar to when we come to the story of the spies in Numbers 13 and 14. I'm always like, oh, no. Oh, no. I'd rather talk about happy things, right? Can we talk about happy things? And, uh, but, but in this case, we have, we have some difficulties that we have to get through. They're, the children of Israel on the, are on the brink of great glory. Great glory. Only to exchange the glory for a lie, a deception, a counterfeit. Right? And, and it's, this isn't the only time that happens, right? That happens with the spies too, right? So here you've got the same thing happening or a similar thing happening. So I mentioned that they're on the brink of great, great glory, but they exchange the glory for a lie or something that's not good. And Psalm 106, 19 through 23, refers to what took place. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Okay, this is the ESV. I normally try to use the ESV up here just to create some kind of consistency. I'll often read various translations, and different translations sometimes express Scripture in a way that is uh, helps explain a certain aspect of what God's communicating. And in this case, when I brought this up and saw this, I was like, I, I can't read this one because verse 20, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox, is an absolute mistranslation of the scripture. It is not what the scripture said in the Hebrew. So I pulled up the NASB and really several other translations, they get it right, where it says, thus they they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. That's an important distinction, okay? That the children of Israel exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass, not they exchanged God's glory for the image. Because they didn't make the calf to replace God. They made the calf to replace Moses. Okay. Now I'm going to give you a basis for why we can say that with confidence as we go through here, but they were not making a replacement for God. Now think about this too. God is still on the mountain. They can still see the fire. What they don't know is what has happened to Moses. They know that God's there. They don't know where Moses is. They're not making a replacement for God. So, but we're not just going to use that kind of logic to prove this. We'll, we'll go through scripture too. But, but continuing on, they forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So they exchanged their glory. And, all right, so I think I have, uh uh-huh. Okay, so I want to pull up this scripture here, or not this scripture, right here. These are two Hebrew words that are used in describing the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. 
there is Allah, okay, which is to go up, and it's often, uh, the way that it's conjugated would be translated as uh, to, to bring up, or he brought up, brought you up, okay? And that's always referring to Moses' action. Now then there's another verb, yatsa, okay? So like, it, um, you know, we, we, uh, we say a blessing of God bringing forth bread from the earth when we say hamotzi, right? Well, that's from this yatsa, he brought out, like to go out is yatsa, but when you conjugate it a certain way, um, it becomes you brought out. And that's, that's the verb that's always used for God's action. So Moses brought the people up. God brought the people out. And so the way that these verbs are used in the text shows us that when the children of Israel asked for the golden calf or for something to stand in the gap, they were speaking specifically regarding Moses. And now we'll take a look at this. Um, okay, so if we looked in Exodus 32.1, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people ascended about, assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god, Elohim, who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up, which is Allah from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They're not saying we don't know what's become of God. They're not saying make us a replacement for yod heh vav -Hey. They're saying make us Elohim. Well, what is Elohim? Elohim can refer to God. It's not a proper name. It can refer to God, but it can also refer to lesser gods. It can refer to judges. It can refer to powers. In fact, the root word El is a form of power. So they're saying, make us a great one, make us a power that will go before us. Because Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So we need someone else who's going to stand here. And then as we continue on reading in this passage, in Exodus 32, verse 2 through 8, Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with, it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up, Allah, from the land of Egypt. Now, so, so again, it's, it's talking about an, a power, an Elohim, who brought you up. And now what also too, if you were to refer back to Exodus 7, 1, um, God says to Moses, he says, I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh. Right? He, he didn't make Moses God. He made him, well, he didn't even say, I, may, I will make you like a God. It didn't say that. It said, I will make you Elohim to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would see Moses as a power, right? Um, and so, so there, there's this connection. So they're saying, this is your Elohim who brought you up. This is the replacement for Moses. Now continuing, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast unto yod heh vav -Heh. Right? So there's no confusion in Aaron's mind, at least. There may have been confusion in some of the people. And there was confusion in some of the people uh, as to what they were really doing. But Aaron knows 
we're going to make offerings to the true God. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. This word play, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, lechazak, okay, which is to laugh. And you think, oh, well, getting up to play or to laugh or something like that, that's not bad, right? But it actually is bad. It's the same word that's used when it was, when the scripture talked about Ishmael, uh, mocking Isaac. The very reason that, uh, Rebecca sent him out. Is that right? No, no, Sarah sent him out. (laughs) That Sarah sent Ishmael out is because he was that doing that very same thing, this mocking. Okay, what else can we understand of this mocking? It's the same word that Potiphar's wife used when she talked about Joseph, when she accused him of trying to lay with her. Use the same exact word. You brought in this Hebrew to laugh at us, to mock us, to sport with me. Okay, so within this, as we, if you were to go through and look at all the instances, there's connections to sexual immorality, there's potentially even connection with murder. Um, so we're talking about the cardinal sins, okay? Idolatry, uh, murder, and sexual immorality. So, so they weren't just, well, the children of Israel were beginning to stray badly at this point, okay? Uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up, Allah, from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your Elohim, O Israel, who Allah brought you up from the land of Egypt. So over and over we're getting the Allah used. Then if we continue on, I'm going to skip to Exodus 32:11, just to skip forward a couple of verses. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out? Yatsah from the land of Egypt with great power, with mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out, Yatsah, to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. So, and this is not the only place where that distinction is made, but right here in this one passage, we're seeing a clear distinction of where these verbs are tying the action. Okay. So they have traded their glory for that of a calf. And so we have to ask the question, well, why did they make a molten calf, right? I mean, they, they don't know what's become of Moses, but do they need a replacement for Moses? You know, do, do they need that replacement? And what's kind of driving their thoughts? You know, they say, as for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So make an Elohim for us, a power for us, who can go before us. And so we to, to kind of get in the mindset of what was going on, I think we kind of need to look back to what happened 40 days before. Okay. And so let's take a look at Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. Now when all the, okay, so God has come down on the mountain in fire and wind and cloud and and 
great glory. And he has spoken the Ten Commandments. And here in verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So here, God had had Moses assemble all the people around the mountain, and God spoke to where they all could hear it. But they were afraid, and they said, We can't come close to God. Moses, you go be close to God for us, because if we get close to God, we're going to die. So now we need you to go before us, and then, since you know, it seems like you're safe and okay. You go do that. You tell us what God says. And Moses says, no, you know, don't fear. God's come to test you so that you will revere him, right? And so essentially Moses is encouraging them not to shy away. To say, no, God wants you to be near. He's not going to destroy you for being near to him. But they want him uh, to go and, and be near instead. And now, you know, go, going forward from there, uh, Moses brings the children of Israel into covenant with God. And in Exodus 24, verse 12, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 18, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. And then skipping to verse 15, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called the Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the cloud of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And this is why I can say the children of Israel saw God's presence on the mountain. They didn't have a question of where he had gone. They had the question of where had Moses gone because they saw him go into the cloud. They saw God's fire, devouring fire on the top of the mountain. Okay, and that's, that's the scene. And so now... Forty days have gone by, but not forty days and forty nights, according to the sages. And so they, they erred in their counting, and they thought he should have been here by now. What's happened to him? Um, and the logical conclusion would be, if Moses did not return when he said he was going to return, then he's been devoured by the fire that is on top of the mountain. And this man, this man who brought us up, out of Egypt, can't even live in God's presence. What about us? Right? So now it becomes again, oh, we, if God's going to be, if we're going to be serving God, we need someone to stand between us that isn't going to be devoured. <laughs> okay, Aaron, make us a power that will go before us. Right? So again, it's, it's this replacement aspect. But, but part of the problem with what's going on is, again, they're forgetting the glory that God had given to them that they could stand and see His presence on the mountain and hear His voice and not die. 
that he was drawing them into a relationship with him. So rather than this fear, and I'm going to stand away, and I'm going to have something stand in, this, in, the, in the way there, kind of the intercessor that intercepts and keeps me from coming into God's presence, let me have something. But God's saying, no, I love you. I want you to be mine. I want to be in relationship with you. You don't need this calf or this power to stand in between us. Okay, but that's what they were doing. They exchanged their glory, the glory they had with God, and gave it to this molten calf, which is what Psalm 106 was talking about. Okay, so, so they want someone to go before them. And I think at this point it's important to talk about what was it that they made. Okay, Exodus 32.4 says he took... He took this from their hand, talking about the, uh, the gold earrings, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf, which is an eagle masecha. Okay. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So eagle is a calf. Masecha doesn't really have a very good, uh, translation. You know, sometimes you'll see metal, sometimes you'll see, say gold, sometimes molten, you know, what is it? Well, masecha is the word for mask. It's the word for mask. So at Purim, you wear a mask, you wear a masecha. Okay, so they made this calf mask. Interesting, right? They made this mask. And so... They made a mask to stand in the, in the gap before them to essentially hide who they were, to hide behind it, and hoping that it would be the thing that could uh, essentially make it possible for them to relate with God to some degree, but not too close. Now, it's interesting that God gave Moses the tablets right at this time, and the calf was made, and then Moses comes down the mountain and he smashes the tablets, and then in the next verse, he destroys the mask. Okay? And there's a connection here, because the mask, this eagle masecha, is a counterfeit intermediary that the people have created to try to relate to God in a safe manner. But the tablets that God gave to Moses, they, they're called the, the, uh, the Luchot, they're the tablets, they're also the, uh, the witnesses, the two witnesses. Okay? And what do they witness to? They witness to the fact that God will rest his presence among man. And they give witness to the character and nature of God that we're to become. And part of the reason why we say that it gives testimony to God resting his presence among Israel is if we go back to God saying, they shall make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. The first commandments he begins to give is to build an ark of the testimonial tablets. Right? So he's, he's saying, this is the first thing that you're going to need. My sanctuary needs a place for my word to dwell. 
and that's in my presence will be there. And now he's come and said, okay, here are the tablets that are going to be the place of my sanctuary. And these give witness to the fact that I am going to dwell among you and you're not going to die because I'm going to give you the right way to approach me. So you've got this true testimony from the tablets of who God is and the relationship, that God's, God's relationship that he wants with man. And then you've got this counterfeit, which is the Egel Masecha. Okay. And so Moses smashes both of them. Part of the smashing, I think, was so that the people themselves would not be destroyed. The tablets would be destroyed on, on the people's behalf. And then the, the calf was destroyed as the beginning of bringing the people to repentance. And one of the questions that's asked sometimes is, why were the people okay with Moses smashing the calf? I mean, if they really believed that this was their God that brought them out of Egypt, then they would probably want to defend it a little bit. But Moses comes back and he just smashes it, grinds it to powder, and causes them to drink it. Why? Because they say, well, Moses is here. We don't need the calf. The man did not die in God's presence. We were actually wrong. Yes, Chris. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's a very good point. Yeah, because in a way, if they thought he was dead and now he's back, it is a picture of the resurrection. Yeah, absolutely, very cool. And and uh, and then you know, there's so many parallels in this story of the coming of Yeshua, of the grace that we have and the restoration that we have through him. It's almost as though if you were to start reading from if you were to start reading from the, the point where they make the calf all the way through the end of this portion, I think you can just put it side by side with the story of Yeshua coming. The life that he lived, the call to repentance that he brought bring the people to repentance, and then the life he lived, his death, his resurrection, and then looking forward to his return in glory, right? Now, I speak about his return in glory because Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days. He came down, he saw the sin, and then he goes back up 40 days interceding, and then there's a third 40-day period, and when he comes down at the end of the last period on Yom Kippur, He's bringing back the two tablets that have been made new. Had the same words that were written on the first one, but now he's coming back in glory. His face is shining. His face is radiant. Um, in fact, I, I do want to go there and, and take a look at this. Exodus 34, I might have it in here. Exodus 34, 33 through 35, or 29 through 32. I don't know. Let's see, what, what do we have here? Um, I don't know what I do half the time. It's okay. Um, okay, yeah, starting in verse 29. Let's do that. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand. Right, This is his second coming with the tablets in his hand. He was coming down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his, spe- uh, because of his speaking with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. 
Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and, the, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Okay, so the next verse that comes up is verse 33. 33 follows 32. And uh, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil, a, ma- a masave, over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went to speak with him, him being God. So Moses came down after being in God's presence and his face shone with glory. And he would then convey to the children of Israel what God had told him. And after that, Moses would put a veil over his face. And he would keep the veil in place until he would return to God's presence. He would remove the veil, speak with God, come back, convey to the children of Israel what God had spoken, and then he'd put the veil back over his face. But the veil is a masave. Okay? A masave is related to a masacha. This is another interesting part, right? So we have these two words. The molten image or the mask is the masacha, and the veil or the mask is the masave. And I should have brought this with me. The difference between the two words is this third letter. Now, they're clearly not the same word, but they both mean mask. Okay, So the children of Israel made a mask that was a counterfeit to keep them away from God. And then Moses wore a veil that actually concealed the glory that was shining from his face. And, and these two words, they both do mean mask, but they're related... Uh, there's actually this this theory about how Hebrew words work. Often with when you talk about uh, a verb in Hebrew, most of the time they are three-letter roots. Okay? Neither of these are verbs. But normally they're a three-letter root. And it's thought that when the first two letters are the same, then the words are related, and the third letter is what gives distinction or nuance to what the word is. And so even in this case, uh, it's noted that Masecha and Maseva are related, and they both show up in this portion, speaking of a way of things that conceal, in some degree, God's glory. One was in a way that man chose, right? And then there was this other, for, they were trying to do self-preservation, and then Moses was doing it actually, I, th- I think for their benefit, because he was still bringing God and representing God to them. Now, so some of this glory was being veiled by Moses. But one of the questions is, well, would there be a day when this veil or this mask would be lifted and the people both can and re- can 
relate with God directly and recognize that they can relate with God. Okay, because that's an important part of this. They had backed off from what God was, from how far God was willing to take them. And they began to re- remove themselves further and further. But God's wanting to say, no, I want to draw you in closer and closer. It makes me think about uh, in John 16, when Yeshua is talking about prayer. And he says, this is John 16, 23. He says, in that day, you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. And then verse 26, he says, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. So what Yeshua is saying is he's saying, I'm not this intermediary who's intercepting your access to the Father. The Father loves you, and you're going to ask the Father in my name, and the Father's going to give to you because He loves you. You're not far off. He wants this relationship with you. Now, God makes the way, and now can you walk in it? Can you come to believe that His love for you draws you near and that you can have relationship with Him directly. So there's an invitation in the children of Israel with the the golden calf erred and moved away from that relationship or that degree of relationship, let's say. And in thinking of all these aspects of the veil, uh, the one that is counterfeit, that conceals glory, or that uh, removes the children of Israel from glory, and then you combine the other side of the veil that Moses had that concealed the glory, and then God giving testimony that his desire was to dwell among his children and have close relationship with them. How, does this all fit in at all with what Paul talked about in Second Corinthians 3? And so I want to go look at Second Corinthians 3. This was, I don't know what translation we have up here. I do know that most of the translations I read of 2 Corinthians 3 I found to be very frustrating. And this one might be frustrating too, I, I don't know. But, but I found it to be frustrating because there's so, like, at least the way that I was reading it, the way it seemed to be portraying was not in a way that I find consistent with um, the un- unchanging nature of God's Torah and His Word and His love for His people. But, now if we think about a couple things before we read this. We think about God giving the tablets on stone to Moses to bring down to the children that would give testimony of God's desire to relate with man and to give testimony of his relationship with them and then also be giving them instruction on how to become all that God had created them to be. Right? So, the tablets are beautiful when you think about this, these aspects of what they testify to. Now, Paul, talking to the people in Corinth, says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Messiah, 
delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So if you think about this, he's now compared the believers at Corinth with the tablets and saying, you are tablets that give testimony to God's desire to rest his presence on man, to have deep relationship with man, and to show the character and nature of God reflected in his people that they learned through his Torah and through following the life of Yeshua. Right? So it's a pretty cool thing. Now you are the tablets. You are the witnesses that are proclaiming all of these things because of the life you've received through Yeshua. And then continue on, he says, such is the confidence we have through Messiah toward God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our competence is from God. He also made us competent as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, the Ruach. For the letter kills, but the Ruach gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the sons of Israel could not look intently upon Moses' face because of its glory, although it was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be even more glorious? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness overflows even more in glory. For even what was glorious is not glorious in comparison to the glory that surpasses it. Say that five times and try to keep it, keep it straight what he just said, right? For even what was glorious is not glorious in comparison to the glory that surpasses it. I mean, it's not that complicated, but it's, you know, you read it and you're like, wait, what? Let me reread that. Because he's saying that the gl- what God gave to Moses in the tablets and the relationship and the covenant was glorious. It came in glory such that Moses' face shone, right? The radiance. But now, what we've been given through Yeshua Messiah by the Spirit is so much more glorious than that that the other appears as though it has no glory at all. It's kind of like if we brought a spotlight and put it up in front of my face, kind of like these, but brighter, it wouldn't even matter that the little ones were on because the spotlight would be bowling me over, right? <laughs> Not that these don't already. But but it's, it's like... it would the light would be of completely insignificant by comparison. Not that it was insignificant, but it would, you know, by contrast. Okay. And he says, For if what is passing away is glorious, much more what remains is glorious. So what's he talking about with what is passing away being glorious? Well, he's talking about the Torah, which was given to man for this world, is passing away just as this world is passing away. This world will pass away. Yeshua said that not one jot or tittle of the Torah would fall away until heaven and earth pass away, right? But then the testimony of the Spirit and the life that we have through that goes beyond this world forever and ever into everlasting life. And so its impact is far greater. It remains even though this world would pass away. It says, therefore, having such a hope, we act with great boldness. Okay, um, I'm going to go ahead and read this. 
We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face in order for the children of Israel not to look intently upon the end of what was passing away. The end of what was passing away, it's like the goal, right? Much like Yeshua, the Torah, Messiah is the end of the Torah for all who believe. He is the goal, the destination of the Torah for all who believe is the proper translation of that Romans passage. In this case, it's like not to look at the goal of what was passing away. But their minds were hardened, for up to this very day the same veil remains unlifted at the reading of the ancient covenant, since in Messiah it is passing away. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay. So there's freedom, there is life, there is a veil that is lifted that brings us into deeper and closer relationship with God through the work of Messiah and by the power of the Spirit. Now, this says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. Now, this this is cool because this actually brings me back to something I wanted to share specifically regarding the tablets. And if we were to look at Exodus 32, 16, which... I don't know if it's if it's on here or not. But Exodus 32:16 says Moses turned and descended from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, tablets inscribed on both their sides. They were inscribed on one side and the other. The tablets were God's handiwork and the script was the script of God engraved on the tablets. Now, normally when the scripture talks about the writing that's on the tablets, it's talking about the uh, uh, ketav, right? The, uh, it's the, the actual writing, okay? But in this, in, in this case, it still is, except for this word engraved. Engraved on the tablets. And what it says is charut on the tablets. Charut. Now, charut which I, I should have made a slide for this one too. I mean, this, that would have been the trifecta. But, oh, you pointed it. I'm like, is there one? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, 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 Harut is engraved, but Herut, which spelled the exact same way, it's just the, the vowel pointings are different, means freedom. Okay, so... The tablets were God's handiwork, and the script was the script of God. Freedom on the tablets. Okay? Freedom on the tablets. And now tie this back to, back to, I'm going to tie this back to the Exodus from Egypt. When the children of Israel were brought out, when they came to the seventh day of Passover, God split the sea. Right? But where were they before God split the sea? They, God had told them to turn back and camp next to Pi-ha-haroth. Pi-ha-haroth is the mouth of freedom. The mouth of the freedom. Ha-ha-haroth is ha is the, haroth is freedom. So you have freedom engraved on the tablets. You have the children of Israel brought to the mouth of freedom where then God split the sea for them. And what happened is when God split the sea and brought the children of Israel through on dry land and then destroyed the Egyptians who were pursuing them, he gave them physical freedom 
from the oppressors of this world. He had set them free from the physical oppression. And then he brought them to Sinai to bring them into covenant relationship with him. And he says, here, I've written on these tablets, freedom. What do you mean? You just gave me commands and you're saying you're giving me freedom? I don't get it. I thought freedom was I can do whatever I want. Free to be my own Lord. It's like, no, uh, that's actually not true freedom. Um, true freedom is actually living under a just king with righteous laws. Uh, and the, the, the laws cause you to be free to become who God created you to be. Okay, you are free to become who God created you to be. So he had a physical freedom that occurred at Pahacharoth. And then when he gave the tablets that were Herut or Harut engraved or freedom on them, he was giving them a spiritual freedom to become who he created them to be, giving physical and spiritual redemption to the children of Israel, which is just such a cool picture to think of, right? We often don't think about the Torah being given as a spiritual freedom, but Paul says that the Torah is spirit, right? And so it is a spiritual freedom because we can become who God created us to be, to have the glory that he predestined for us through Messiah, that he planned for us to walk in from the beginning. And I, I guess, you know, that's really... The overarching theme, I think, for today is this aspect of there is a glory that God has created for us to walk in, that we are to be, to become, and are we going to exchange it for that of our own creation or that which is a counterfeit? Or, or will we take the dangerous approach and say, you know what, God, I'm going to come close. You say I can be in relationship with you. The tablets stand as witness that I can be in relationship with you. Yeshua, who is the Word made flesh, stands as witness that I can be in relationship with you. And so I'm going to draw near, as your Word says to do, and I'm going to let the freedom that you give me in your Torah bring me to the goal of Messiah which is living a life unto you. And even with this freedom that we're given, we still need grace to actually continue on, grace and mercy to continue on this path to become who we're meant to be. Because we know that we're not going to walk perfectly all along the way. So when Chelsea mentioned earlier about the need to communicate God's mercy today, it's we still need to hear that word. We still need to hear the word of God's mercy and his grace, which is exactly what happens when Moses comes down. God says, go down. I'm going to destroy the people because they've sinned. And Moses doesn't go down. God says, stand aside. Moses says, I'm not going to stand aside. I'm going to stand in the gap. And so God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy the people. Moses didn't say, forgive them because they're still walking in the sin right now. So what does he do? He says, he says, okay, now that you've said you're not going to destroy them, now I can actually go down there and, and call the people to repent. So he goes down and he breaks the tablets, which probably jars them 
significantly, and then he destroys the calf, grinds it into a powder, and causes them to, to drink, which is a parallel with the, uh, the test of the sota, the wife, the unfaithful wife, right? The drinking the waters from the, uh, the ground of the, of the temple to declare whether they were guilty or not. And so then after he has called them to repentance and brought forth some level of uh, judgment on them, he goes back to intercede for God and ask for forgiveness. And God says, those who sinned, I'm not going to forgive, but I'm going to send you forward with my angel. Then Moses keeps interceding, right? So mercy had been given, and now Moses came to try to bring repentance, and then he's still interceding, and then he keeps interceding to the point where he actually gets grace extended to the people so that not only would they not be destroyed, but they could have God's presence go among them. This is the whole story of a complete beautiful parallel of the work of Yeshua who descended from on high to come down to call a people who had sinned grievously to repent and to turn back to following God. And then the tablets are broken and he goes back up. Right, The tablets being broken can even be a picture of Yeshua and his death. Right, And then God says, carve tablets and bring them back up to me. I'm going to write the words of the Torah on them again. And so now you have the tablets brought up from the ground, up from the earth and ascended to heaven. That's the resurrection and the ascension. And then God writes the Torah on the tablets again and sends Moses back. That's the second coming. And with the second coming, what does Yeshua bring? He brings the Torah, the same words that were given from the beginning because the Torah is for this entire age. It may be fading away, but the Torah still stands. This Torah is still valid. It is still the guidebook that brings us into the glory that God declared for us so that we can become, have the freedom to become who God says we are. Amen. You know, and one last thing before closing out on this. We were watching a... Uh, C.S. Lewis has the Chronicles of Narnia that he wrote. Great book series, by the way. I haven't read it all, but I'm told it's fantastic. The parts <laughs> I've read are really good, and uh, I do recommend reading it. I'm trying to take my own recommendation here, but but we we were watching the Voyage of the Don Treader, and and yeah, it's so much easier to watch movies. Read Cliff's Notes, watch movies. Okay, I'll read the book one day. Anyway, there's a time when one of the characters, uh, Lucy, is looking at this book of enchantments and there's this part where it talks about, it's like how to become someone beautiful or something like that. I can't remember how this exactly works. Brain's a little foggy on this one. You could probably tell the story, Danielle. But, but she wants to be beautiful like her sister. And so she begins to wish that within this book. And... And then Aslan, who represents Yeshua, comes and begins to reveal to her that, that, like, all that would be missed out if she wasn't who God made her to be. Right? There's this, she was exchanging her glory that God had given her for the glory of another. And because of that, there was a void. There was a loss in the world of who God had made her to be. And so the image that stood out to me was the exchanging the glory that God gave you for another 
it's corrupting, it's destructive. But actually stepping into and receiving and coming to agree with the glory God has given you, that brings life, that brings wholeness, that brings goodness. And His purpose is forth in this world. So don't exchange your glory for another. Press in and say yes to the dangerous drawing near to God because He loves you. Amen. Did anybody have anything that you wanted to share? Okay. So if if God was not angry with the people because they had made a golden calf uh, as a God to replace him, then was he upset because the people had replaced Moses, his chosen person to bring them out? And, I, and I'm reminded about, uh, and of course I can never give you scripture and verse, but uh, when uh, there were uh, people in the children uh, that had been given freedom from Egypt who decided that they were going to be leaders uh, and so, and replace Moses and, you know, God took care of that. Uh, so is that what you're saying is that uh, the people were not replacing God, they were replacing God's chosen messenger or leader? Okay. That's a good question. Uh, I think there's multiple things that God was angry with the people for. One, he had said not to make graven images. And so now they were going and making a graven image. So they were straying from his commands. Even though it wasn't to replace him, uh, it's a slippery slope that you get into when you begin to, like, uh, um, revere or glorify an object. Mm -hmm. um, even, I, I, it's been, I've heard it talked about, like even with the worship of the s stars and the yes. sun and the moon, began with the idea of, well, God created these things, and so we give glory to God by uh, giving glory to them, but then it became, they became the focus and God became forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so, but so there was a sin of creating a graven image it's potentially something with the replacement of Moses, but I think with that one, I would I would I would lean to the thought that God said, "Well, they really don't know what has become of him. They weren't trying to replace him in this instant. They were making a replacement for him because they thought he was gone. They weren't trying to overthrow him and replace him with the calf. But then when they when they got up to revel, and their behavior was actually completely at odds with um, with everything that God had told them on how they would behave, then I think that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, if so, you will. once again, man decided because it wasn't on their time schedule, man decided to do something about that yeah. and look at what happens yeah. when we do that and how often do we do that yes. as human beings. Great point. Yep, great insight. Absolutely. And uh, Miss Chelsea. I heard you 
said something funny today from a rabbi. He was like, they didn't have any patience and they miscalculated the time for Moses when he came down. Mm -hmm. So that's why we never start anything on time anymore in the Jewish community. We have Jewish (laughs) standard time now. I was like, that sounds a lot like Mexican standard time. Thank you for justifying us. There you go. (laughs) I love it. Wonderful. Okay, we're going to need to wrap up here. Uh, so this will be the last comment. The freedom. Yes. In the commands, right? I imagine as children growing up, at least in this culture, it's very common for kids to desire this idea of freedom away from their parents, mm-hmm. right? And it's just funny because then they get older and then they have bills. And they find that they're often doing the same things that their parents told them they should do, Mm. (laughs) you know, and I I just think, you know, if a child had, say, a lawyer for a parent, uh, a nutritionist for a parent, you know, or professions where these these parents can guide their children. Right. Like this is how you work the system. Right. This is how you stay healthy. Right. We have the commands of God from the one who created the world. I would imagine that he knows the best way to succeed in this world, mm-hmm. right? He created the laws, all of it, natural, spiritual, all the laws. And so he's giving this guide. He said, I created this world. Trust me. I know. I know what will make you succeed. This is the path of success, right? Yes. And then mm-hmm. as children, if we are wise children, then we will heed the guidance, instruction of our parents mm-hmm. and walk in that success, right? Yes. And there's a, a verse, and I honestly don't know how, when you're talking about Moserly and the glory, the veil, um, I just thought it was a verse. I don't have any explanation or connection, but Proverbs 25, 2, God gets glory from concealing things. Kings get glory from investigating. Yes. Amen. That's a beautiful thing. There's that invitation to come and find the glory that God has concealed. Beautiful. I love it. Praise God. All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for the life that we have by your spirit and the work that you are doing in us. Thank you, Lord, that you give us freedom, physical and spiritual, that you give us the way of life. Lord, help us to walk in what you've given, to come to understand the glory that you've called us to walk in, the relationship that you've called us to walk in with you, and help us, Lord, to press in, to draw near, and to come to know that you as our Father love us. Lord, we bless you and we thank you. We give you praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.